If you listen carefully to Callum's reading this morning out of Deuteronomy, and you listen carefully to this passage, you understand these are difficult passages. Um, this is lectionary discipline. I promise you, I thought long and hard early this week. In fact, uh, Stephanie and Valerie would tell you, I said, I'm going to be a little late with the worship guide this week. I'm still debating whether or not I'll preach this sermon. Uh, that, that the lectionary calls us to, and yet this is the purpose of lectionary discipline, that we will take on passages that we might otherwise skip. I would much rather preach something else, and trust me, considered it uh, for a little while this week, but thought, where is the integrity if we don't look at all that Jesus says to us? You know, we can hardly listen to this remarkable and, and in many respects, harsh account without running into a certain confusion. How often do we hear the stories of the savior of sinners, the good physician, the worker of miracles, the shepherd of souls? That's how we like to think about Jesus. How often we really think we know Jesus and how quickly we can produce our catchphrases to, to describe Jesus. Oh, a person of love, a person of goodness. A person of compassion, infinite patience, and all of the rest of the pious phrases that we can pull together that are not wrong, but they're not a total picture also. And so then suddenly, such as here, we encounter some saying or some scene in Jesus' life which is so strange, so out of character that it simply cannot be fitted into any of these ordinary categories, and at the same time, it offends us as if we've never heard it before. Helmut Tillich said, the life of Jesus is like a diamond whose facets glisten with, with familiar and unfamiliar lights, sending out into our eyes ever new views. These sayings and these parables that we have here just seem unfamiliar to us. They seem strange to us when we think about this and think about Jesus. Ordinarily, Jesus strikes us as being attractive. The man with the shepherd's voice, calling out for the lost. And we're about to see that in chapter 15 coming up. I've got some preview of what Andrea might be preaching about next week. And so we're going to see some of that. And, 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 and the Jesus who never tires of describing the glory that awaits us, if we come to him, security for you, peace for you, joy for you, Life, free and full. We are used to hearing Jesus say to us, Come unto me, all you who are burdened and heavy laden. I will give you rest. But here he says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate their father and mother and everything dear to him or her, they cannot be my disciple. Jesus is saying, Whoever trusts in me must declare mistrust of all other things. Instead of pleading with us to follow, Jesus is actually repelling us and, and, and warning us against himself. Instead of saying, I give you eternal life, he says, count what it will cost you in this life and consider whether or not you're equal to being my disciple. Instead of inflaming our passion for him, he pours cold water on us this morning. How do we, or even can we, reconcile all of this? Well, we might look at Jesus' life and where he is right now. Maybe that'll give us some insight. The crowds have grown large, as they tell us right there. Uh, Luke tells us right there. Jesus' popularity is high. He's on a meteoric kind of rise in popularity right now. 
Over and over again, Luke has told us in previous chapters that the people are amazed at Jesus. That happens to be Aiden, one of Aiden's favorite words right now. Say, Aiden, how was your day at school? It was amazing. And well, how's dinner? It's amazing. Everything's amazing, right? And so the crowd would say, how's Jesus? He's amazing. We see him doing all of these things. Multiple times they're saying we're amazed by him. In fact, Jesus has become so popular, he is finding it difficult to find time to be alone. And we're told that he has to withdraw, almost sneak away to be alone for a while. The Pharisees are opposing him, no doubt. We see that. But that is delighting the crowds all the more. Put it in their eye, Jesus. They're the bad guys anyway. They're the ones causing us the trouble. And so they are amazed at how he handles the Pharisees. The crowds are delighted. They're growing. We know on the Sermon on the Plain, he spoke to thousands. He just recently fed 5,000. Jesus is doing amazing things powered by the Holy Spirit. For we are to understand, as Mark told us, the kingdom is at hand. And so Jesus wants followers, but not just on any basis. Jesus is not building a fan club. That is not why he's come. The task that he is on is, is far too great, and the cost is way too high to mislead his potential disciples who have been spurred on by the emotion of the moment or maybe even their own self-interest. The crowds are there traveling with Jesus, but Jesus is not on a sightseeing tour of Israel. I have done that. It's a nice thing to do. But that's not what Jesus is doing. He is headed to Jerusalem and to the cross. For me, a, a seminal verse in the Bible is Luke 9, 51, where it says, Jesus set his face like iron to go to Jerusalem. You know why he set it like iron? Because this is that difficult of a task. If there's any wavering in you at all, you will not go to Jerusalem. Jesus understands what experience he's about to have. Jesus wanted full disclosure of what it means to follow him, to be citizens of the kingdom of God. He does not want... Pretend, pretend disciples out here. He doesn't want people being fooled. The crowds are counting the assets of the kingdom. Food, healing, a voice against those who would oppress us. But they are ignoring the cost, the liabilities of the kingdom, of going to Jerusalem with Jesus. Jesus clearly articulates in no uncertain terms the cost of discipleship. You have to hate your family. Now, there are some Aramaic and Hebraic uh, 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 linguistic pieces here that help us understand this and make it not so harsh. You know, uh, uh, the comparison, it was either all one or all the other. This medium ground didn't kind of exist. Like, I kind of like you. You know, no, you either love me or you hate me, right? So, so there's some of that there, but we dare not explain the way these staggering words of Jesus by using linguistic tricks. Jesus has said before, if you follow me, families will be divided. To be a disciple, one must be so committed to the cause of Christ and the work of Christ and the mission of Christ and the relationship with God and with Jesus that all other relationships pale in comparison. That that one relationship is our ultimate concern. The idea is so strange to our ears. That we, if we were to hear it on the street, if someone said this on the street, we would say, why, you're anti-Christian. And yet these are the words of Jesus. He is going to Jerusalem, and he knows the fate that awaits him in that city. The city that kills the prophets and 
the prophet's disciples. So Jesus says, count the cost. We're not sightseeing here. We're not going to have a, we'll have a dinner, but it's not the kind of dinner you're thinking when we get to, when we get to Jerusalem. Count the cost. And people don't do it. Everyone, we're told, will fall away. Even Peter, who denies that he would ever fall away, does when they come face to face with the cost. And so Jesus is trying to tell us what it takes to be his disciple. The truth is, according to Jesus, that all his followers can expect to be challenged by trials, by rejection, by doubts, unless one has such a commitment to the cause of Christ that all other things become unimportant by comparison. One will not and can, in fact cannot walk in the path of discipleship. The path will grow hard and we will wander off. That's what Jesus is warning us about. It is so easy when things get hard for me to wander off. I think I'll take a, I think I'll go this direction. I think I see some trees over there. I'll get some shade over there. And so Jesus is trying to warn his disciples what it really means to be a disciple, what that cost is. And so, by comparison, no other relationship can hold on par with the relationship that we have with Jesus and with God in Jesus Christ. The second requirement of discipleship is that you carry your own cross. We are understand that to follow Jesus, we must, as almost every New Testament writer tells us, die to ourselves. We often think of that being our low base desires, right? As, 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 as the writer of Hebrews says, says, that sin that so easily besets us, yeah, I've got to set that aside. I've got to quit those things, you know. It, it, it would be best if I wouldn't do those things. And it is true. We should stop those things, Jesus says. But it's not just those low base desires. Jesus says we have to die even to our noble selves, those things that we think we really do well. You know, I'm a pretty good guy. Do you guys know that? You've got about an hour and a half. I'll tell you about, about it. I, if you got all day, I can go all day about it. I'm a pretty good guy. Uh, uh, I'll start when I was a kid, and I was a pretty fair athlete. I know it doesn't look like, well, maybe you don't want to go there. Those noble selves, they get in the way of that relationship with Jesus that brings us to God. We have to die to ourselves. We have to understand that it is Christ and Christ alone that matters. We find our righteousness, our purpose, our fulfillment, not in what we do, but in what Christ bids us to do. What a stern idea. Does Jesus really demand such a commitment of his disciples? Yes. Jesus is calling on us to live and order our lives entirely around him and his teaching. His mission to love and care for the world has to be our priority. And while that sounds wonderful, those of you who have done that kind of work know it is difficult to love and care for people at times. Even people we care for deeply. As paradoxical as it is, dying to self is how we find life in Christ. In harsh words, especially for those in the first century who knew the reality of what a cross meant, Jesus rings the alarm to those who had duped themselves into thinking they were his disciples when they were merely hangers-on. You know, I'm just here for the food. That's where they were. And so, and so Jesus, Jesus tells us these very harsh words, words and then gives us a couple of parables to help us understand, to, to, to show us the folly, folly of not seriously counting the cost. First, he tells us the parable of the tower. Suppose a person wants to build a tower. 
I, I grew, grew up in Collinsville, at least I went to high school in Collinsville, Illinois. And, and so there was a house there that was big and beautiful that the guy never finished. And it was a joke around town. It was a beautiful home, still didn't finish to this day. I don't think they turned it into something else. And, and, and we would laugh at this. Because, well, why would you spend 20 years trying to build a house that you never could get done? And so, and so he, he says, says don't, don't be a fool, fool like that. Don't, don't let people, people ridicule you by, by not counting the cost. cost. And then and he, he tells, tells us about a king. And, and, and the king would lose it all if he doesn't understand what kind of war he's in and whether or not he should go there. Notice that both parables have the same words in them when it says, doesn't the builder of the tower and doesn't the king sit down and count the cost? So what Jesus says, if, if we want to be his disciples, we should sit down contemplate, think hard about what that means for our lives, give it serious thought. What am I willing to do? What am I willing to give up to be a disciple? It is serious. What does it mean in 2022 to be a follower of Jesus Christ? How do we see the Beatitudes? How do we see the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain? How do we put those kind of demands into our life and all those other things that we hear about? And then Jesus gives us his final demand there in that final verse to be his disciples. You just have to give up everything. Okay, I've told you about families now. And I've told you about carrying a cross. Let's just be plain. You have to give up everything. This is ultimate stuff here. This is not penultimate. Jesus, honest, sincere, loving leader who cares ultimately for his followers is keeping it real here. Keeping it real about what it takes. He doesn't want anyone to come to him mistakenly. This is what it takes. Make no mistake. Now this is not new in terms of relationship with God. Go back to Exodus. Go back to the Decalogue, to the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. Ultimate. God is that first priority. In our world, when on any given channel on Sunday, except maybe our live stream, you can see the marketing of Christianity as low-cost, low-risk, feel-good commodity. Right? Just come to me and you'll have everything you want. The prosperity gospel. All of those kind of things. Just come here and I'll make you feel good. When you see that, Jesus' words ring loudly into that kind of situation. When he says, come, follow me, it'll just cost you everything. Christianity is not a marketing effort. It is not low cost, low risk. It will cost you everything. Jesus is not promoting easy believism. He is calling for undivided loyalty. Salvation in Jesus is not merely a propositional transaction. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? You know, kind of the Roman road, if those of you who grew up like I did, the Roman road, right? Uh, it's not that kind of propositional transaction. It is a covenant relationship with God who demands ultimate commitment and loyalty. So the logical question to me as I thought about this passage this week, why would anyone do this? Why, why would anyone do this? And I was reminded of the words when people are leaving Jesus and he says to his disciples, do you want to go also? And the disciples said, where would we go? You have the words of life. You see, there is no other place where life can be found. This is how life is found and how it is lived well. This relationship is how we come alive, this relationship with God. 
Jesus said, for the one who loses their life for my sake will find their life. This is where life is. We have to hate our own life or we cannot be a disciple. But in hating our own lives, in giving up our lives, in losing our lives, the truth is we find true aliveness that only God can give us. In giving up our shadow lives that we build that are just so-so good, I'm a good guy, we find true life, true life that never dies. Frank Stagg said in one of our classes once at seminary, you see, the gospel is this, it's total gift. Everything for you, total gift. And it's total demand. It'll cost you your life. If we're going to find authentic life from our creator, we have to give up our life. How are we ever going to do that? That is the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Working with us, living with us, sharing with us, enabling us through God's grace to be the people God calls us to be. Amen.